This evening, God's Word comes to us from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, closing off this section from 11, uh, from 2, 11 to 22. This is God's holy word. Please give careful attention to the reading of it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Who are you and what is your identity? Much of our culture has come to major in the minors when it comes to defining oneself, where we're once considered what were once considered personality quirks or mere phases of interest or even personal temptations have been elevated to the status of core identity markers. And it's become absolutely necessary for many for these personal preferences to be core identity markers if one is to lead an emotionally healthy life. For Christians, though, you and I can give a pretty succinct answer to the question of who I am and who my identity is. Indeed, for some of us, the answer serves as a mere two-word email signature block. In Christ, that is who I am. That is who you are. In this section of Ephesians, from verses 11 through 22, though, Paul has been hammering into the Ephesians that as a reality of the new covenant, the Christian actually has a dual nature. Those who are in Christ are a new type of creature, fit for an inbreaking of new creation with both an individual and a corporate identity in Christ. For us, then, the question, who are we, is just as relevant as who am I? Now, it's been said that there are two kinds of Pauline epistles. The first tends to go something like, we are heirs through the unfathomable grace and the imaginable, uh, unimaginable glory. And the second is more, I am asking as a personal favor, I am begging you, church, to just act normal for a few minutes. Ephesians is thankfully the former type of epistle. Paul has no specific gripes with the Ephesian church that he feels called to correct. Instead, he's been focused on edifying this Gentile congregation with the joy of their full engrafting into the promises and inheritance of God's people, into the oracles of God, into God's messengers and revelation, into his special covenants, and even into his own personal presence. And in this closing section of chapter 2, Paul will unpack the depths of this corporate inheritance that we've each been granted as the body of Christ, as his church, as his family, and even as his temple. That is the new covenant dwelling for the Spirit of God. Verse 19 begins, so then. Now, it's worth noting that so and then mean basically the same thing. 
And Paul is actually the only scripture writer who doubles up these synonyms like this. So then, this uh, phrase really flies in the face of critics with proclivities toward doubting Pauline authorship. Paul uses this word pair here to indicate a clear conclusion based on his previous argument. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, that is, God's family. Now, Paul has been using these characteristically Greco-Roman citizenship terms to help his audience understand their previous separation from and their current connection with Israel. This is familiar language for them. So while it's theologically deep, it's accessible to everyone and not just learned theologians. It's not just academic jargon. It's Paul being all things to all men so that by by all means possible he may save some. Like Christ's parables, Paul mostly speaks in a way that is easy for those who are helped by the Spirit and humbled in heart and paying attention to understand and yet baffling to those who are hard of heart. For most, Paul was hitting them in a place that they longed for, a place with safeties and recourse to justice, a kingdom where they could belong and they could be counted, where they would no longer be, continuing in verse 19, strangers. That is, they were no longer foreigners in this, they would no longer be foreigners in this heavenly city with no guaranteed civil rights or privileges. And strangers, they were those who would just be passing through or they would be staying temporarily in a city. In Acts, Paul can be seen utilizing the types of rights that these non-citizen strangers would have yearned for. In chapter 16, the magistrates get a hold of him and Silas for disturbing the city, and the crowds and the magistrates alike attack and beat him and Silas and throw him in prison. And yet in chapter 21, Paul lets them know, hey, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. If not for citizenship, the only protections one might hope for would be influence from local business or associates or patrons or friends. In Acts 19, we find out that in addition to his citizenship, he also had friends in high places like this. He was in with the Asiarchs of Ephesus, who were the most powerful and influential provincials at the time and would definitely have gone to bat for him to positively influence some of the officials that he dealt with. He was lucky. He was privileged for such a time as this. Next, Paul contrasts kingdom citizens with sojourners. These were resident-free aliens who may have been born in, and they may have lived in the city for generations, but also had no access to legal privileges or any protections. Hebrews 11 and 13 and 1 Peter 2 speak of such strangers, sojourners, and exiles on earth with no lasting city here, but with hearts that are set on a city to come. And this basically described most residents of Ephesus. 
very few who lived there were citizens of either Ephesus or any other large cities like Tarsus or Rome. Paul, though, again, was privileged for this time and had dual citizenship, actually, in his home city and in Rome. To give you an idea of how rare citizenship was in late 2nd century to early 3rd century, there was an inscription that has been found which praises the magnificent generosity of Aurelius Berenus, who had put on an 11-day banquet for the city leaders and its 1,040 citizens. Now, since Ephesus had grown significantly by Paul's time, more than a century earlier, the number of citizens was way smaller. So for Paul to tell his Christian Gentile audience, which even included slaves, that they were fellow citizens with the saints, it would be clear that this was conveying to them an astounding privilege in Christ. What's even more amazing, though, is that Paul is just getting started here. The apostle will move on from this political metaphor and reveal that God has made believers members of his very own family. We are a family of faith, as Galatians uh, 6 puts it. And Paul actually uses some artistic wordplay throughout verses 19 through 22 as he uh, permutates the word house in every verse here in our passage tonight. So residents and alien, uh, resident aliens and family members in, in verse 19, uh, built on in verse 20, building in verse 21, as well as built up together and dwelling in verse 22, all have house as their root. But their usage moves from describing a mere building to a family. And then something even more amazing that we'll get to in a minute. Now, Greco-Roman families had widows and orphans as well as freedmen and slaves in them. So they were generally pretty big. Believers in this context, though, are not slaves or even freedmen in the family, but sons and co-heirs with the one eternal son that we saw back in chapter 1, verse 5, where the father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, as a side note here, there is one reason who uh, that those who like to de-gender the Bible translations, they may have good intentions, but they end up missing out on what Scripture means to convey, especially in this context. Those who like to de-gender the Bible may be trying to capture a reality of equal worth that the Bible clearly places everywhere on women. Like when women have saved the rear ends of a boatload of patriarchs and the prophet David to boot. Women are also the first to join, uh, to, to, to find the risen Jesus, a major apologetic point, considering the cultural status of women's testimony in court at that time. So degendering translators in this context may mean to help convey the, the dignity that Scripture gives to women all over the place, but it ends up confusing the high privilege that women that would have been conveyed here in the first century, speaking of all son, of all Christians as sons and heirs. Paul continues in verse 20, telling us that this household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Christians are not just 
members of God's house, but also the material from which it is built. The point here is that the Ephesian congregation has already been laid down as the first layer of stone on the temple's foundation. The building then would continue to be raised, but the foundation and the initial level was already laid at the time that Paul wrote this. In the background, this, there's this idea there that there's, there's no going back to the Mosaic system that excluded Gentiles from full membership in the covenants of promise. As would be said in Galatians 2.18, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. The Mosaic Old Covenant has gone. And the New Covenant fulfillment has come in Christ's once-for-all high priestly sacrifice has made it so that there is no going back. As 2 Corinthians 3 says, the ministry of righteousness far exceeds the ministry of condemnation in glory. And as Hebrews 7 and 8 and 10 put it, when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. The new covenant makes the first one obsolete, and so the old is vanishing away. And Christ has done away with the first in order to establish the second. The foundation, then, on which the Ephesian saints are built up is the ministry of the apostles and prophets. Now, this is a very well-known verse, and while Sunday school kids and seminary students often put it to memory, it tends to slip under the radar that apostles and prophets are flipped here compared to the word order that they're normally found in. Everywhere when apostles are placed first in this word pairing, the full breadth of the Old and New Testament scriptures are being alluded to. It is still entirely still possible that the the flipped word order here is just a stylistic, and so perhaps a lot of commentators, to include John Calvin himself, are correct that this is another of several places referring to the foundation of the church as the scriptures and Christ, the point of the scriptures. However, it seems more likely that in this context, Paul actually has new covenant prophets in mind. Prophets with a, a lowercase p, that is, like Agabus in Acts 11 and in 21, or like the four daughters of Philip in Acts 2 and in 21. These were prophets in the sense that they delivered or spoke forth the inspired revelation to the New Testament communities, the the ones that lacked the written apostolic revelation like we're reading right now. And in this sense, both the apostles and the prophets carry forth Christ's proclamation of peace And this nuance, it sort of fits Paul's tone throughout Ephesians, where the gospel is going out in this fresh way on the Roman roads aided by the Pax Romana and the apostles and the lowercase prophets are church planting. The idea is that the church is growing. You may recall that Paul was thinking along these lines in chapter 1 when he was excited and humbled at his unique place in redemptive history, bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. So then, the tone here is just slightly more of an evangelical note when we recognize the sort of linguistic nuance there of the apostles and prophets being switched. Paul is being Paul. Again, all things to all men, and just wants to see the peace and the church as it grows and presses forward and goes out to all the nations. 
Either way, though, as we continue, the cornerstone of the church is Christ Jesus himself. Now, Paul's metaphors on building construction are also interesting given that Ephesus was in the early phases of a construction boom, which lasted all the way into the next century. When, the, when Ephesians was written, one would undoubtedly see all of these new construction sites throughout the city with foundation stones being brought in from quarries or reused in other buildings. Well, Christ forms the cornerstone, which ensures that the whole building is square and stable. The idea here is that Christ is not just a crucial part of the building. He is the central element of the New Covenant Church and era. Indeed, it is, as we go into verse 21 and 22, which are are one unit, it is in him that the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you also are being built up together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit, or in the Spirit. Here there's this clear symmetry in these closing verses with several repeated phrases and structures, and both verses clarify that the building is actually a temple and dwelling place for God. We are that dwelling place of God. And this word for temple refers specifically to the inner part of the temple where God's glory resided, where God lived among his Old Testament people and was seated on the ark in the tabernacle and then in Solomon's temple. The glory that Nehemiah waited for, the glory that Christ brought as he came into the, te- into the city, and the glory that now resides in us as one holy temple. Now the worldwide church is made up of reconciled Jews and Gentiles living with the Lord's presence in us in the Spirit. So we praise God, who actually now dwells with his people in the Spirit. This is the same Holy Spirit's presence, even in the original Garden of Eden, which was showed to be, because of the Spirit's presence, a sanctuary and a proto-temple that we are the fulfillment of. This presence of the Spirit with his people transforms us into a new creation garden and a temple permeated with new creation resurrection life, even in this age as we await the next and the fullness of that new creation life. In addition, no Ephesian could hear verses 21 and 22 without thinking of the great temple of Artemis Ephesia, the Artemisium. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and the largest building in the entire Greek world. It made Ephesus a tourist attraction, and it bolstered its economy. But the temple we are growing into now is this cosmic temple even greater than that, not even worthy to be compared to, that will transcend all human being, all human buildings' glory to the glory of Christ Jesus. So then when each of us considers then, who am I? The answer to that is that you are in Christ, that I am in Christ, that we are in Christ. We are being built up into one unity with one God and with one another as one church, as one body, as one family and one temple, and all to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let's pray.